Monday, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you decided to tune in. When accidents happen in our lives, a gun accidentally goes off, a fire erupts, or someone is accidentally hit by a car, who do we blame for those experiences? Often, it's the people who are involved in those experiences, the people who were doing the things that seemed to lead to that accident. But I think it's reasonable to wonder in these cases, how often are we blaming people who don't hold the ultimate responsibility for the harm that was caused? When crashes happen frequently in particular areas, or if specific guns discharge, who really is to blame? Is it us as individuals, or is it maybe the corporation that makes the gun? Or is it the governmental body that oversees the construction and management of our roads? When safety protocols have not been put into place or respected, how much responsibility should we internalize? And how much responsibility do other organized bodies hold for creating dangerous conditions for us to interact in? I say all of this because the accidents that occur each day are often not random. They are predictable which makes them preventable. We enter every day into a built environment, one that large organizations construct and regulate and therefore have the responsibility to keep everyone safe, but they are not keeping everyone safe. And they certainly are not keeping everyone safe at the same rate. Black and brown and indigenous people, for instance, die of all sorts of accidents at much higher rates than white Americans. That's because they are part of a more dangerously built environment cast into more vulnerable situations where they are more likely to be hurt or to be killed. Now, I guess you could just say this is the cost of progress, that people will always be liable for making deadly mistakes in our technologically developed world. I guess you could say that we hold a lot of responsibility for what goes wrong in our lives. But how do we compare to other wealthy countries like Denmark or Sweden? They don't have nearly the same rates of fatal accidents. They don't live in as dangerous a society. Jessie Singer is someone who has been thinking an awful lot about this. She's a journalist who recently wrote the book there are no accidents, the deadly rise of injury and disaster, who profits and who pays the price. And she's with us today to talk about what accidents really are and who is often responsible for the accidental deaths that happen around us every day. Jesse, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Great to be here. So more people die by accidents now than at any time in U.S. history, which is kind of hard to fathom if you think of the dangerous times that the country has been through in the past. So first, 
What constitutes an accident? I guess, what is it exactly? And how did you come to the conclusion that there are more accidents now than ever before? This is tricky because the word accident means a lot of things in our head. But when we're talking about accidental death, we're talking about a specific category of um, harm, which is essentially unintentional injury-related death. So that's how the CDC classifies it. So what's included in that? That's accidental drug overdoses, um, accidental falls, accidental traffic crashes and fires and drownings. Pretty much every way we die in this country outside of intentional violence and disease. Hmm. Um, and this is like an un- unseen, ignored crisis that is currently killing more than 200,000 people a year. And that has been rising since 1992. And uh, You argue that these accidents aren't really so because they are predictable, that they're scripted. Uh, Talk about what you mean by that. What what is it about our world and the way it's constructed that puts more people into harm's way than than they used to be? Well, this is really tricky because when it comes down to it, you know, we think of accidents as these random things, you know, something that that just happens. Um, But that isn't true if you look at the numbers. If you look at the numbers, you see that, um, you know, if accidents were random, injury-related death would fall randomly across the country, but it does not. Um, uh, People living in poverty and people of color are most likely to die by accident, and this is especially true for certain accidents. Those accidents where policy and infrastructure make a difference between life and death, Mm. like the safety of our homes, the safety of our roads, the safety of our workplaces. And and you can really see the trick that's going on here with the word accident. Um, If you look at something like choking on food deaths, pretty much everyone in the country chokes on food at the same rate. Um, But that isn't true for other types of accidental deaths. Um, And that's because there's not much that can be done on an infrastructural level, on a policy level, to make us all chew our food slower. But the other statistics are terrifying. Black people in this country die in house fires at more than twice the rate of white people. Mm. Indigenous people are struck and killed by drivers at more than twice the rate of white people. In West Virginia, which is a poor state, people are more than twice as likely to die by accident than people just a few miles away, just across the state line in the wealthy state of Virginia. So a way to understand this is that policy decisions and unregulated corporate power lead to risk unequally distributed across the U.S. And so we often think of accidents as a matter of personal responsibility, this individually random event. But really, they're a matter of risk exposure, and we're not all exposed to the same risk. And and as you noted, this is a uniquely American problem. This does not happen in other wealthy countries, not accidental drug overdoses, not so-called traffic accidents, not accidental deaths overall. It's all rising here while falling elsewhere. And so that word, accident, I want to talk about that for just a minute. I mean, the work that you're doing here really puts a little bit of a lie to that word. These aren't accidents that you're talking about. These are, I guess, predictable outcomes of decisions that people have made and or not made and the, 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 the kind of environment that we have created for certain kinds of people in this country. You get at a really important point, which is that the word accident means a lot of things to a lot of people. And 
the truth is when we experience random terror, when something happens that scares us and seems like it came out of nowhere, we desperately want to control it. Controlling it is comforting. And so calling it an accident is a, is a comforting act. It's a way to take all this randomness and put it back in our control. Um, but because what we're talking about here is so broad, you really get into messy territory. I mean, let's just look at the definition. Accident is a tricky word. It has two definitions, and they contradict with one another. So an accident is a random event, and an accident is also, by definition, a harmful event. So at once, it's, by definition, unpredictable, but with a predictable outcome. But then it gets even trickier because researchers have looked into what we hear when we hear the word accident, what that word makes us think. And we actually don't think of either of the dictionary definitions first and foremost. The thing we think first and foremost is unintentional. So essentially, the first thing we think when we hear the word accident is about behavior, about human error, about what one person did. And this is at the core of what we get wrong about accidents. We, we focus on the last person who made a mistake. And from that perspective, it does seem random. This one person just happened to do this one thing. And this is where we get all these personal responsibility tropes that track throughout the history of this country. The nut behind the wheel, the accident-prone worker, the irresponsible parent. Um, and all of these tropes and, you know, this idea of focusing on intention ignores the layered causality that leads to harm. The way that dangerous conditions stack up to put us at risk. And therefore, all of these opportunities to prevent harm. You see a traffic crash and you think, man, that guy was driving like a nut. I would never drive like a nut. And you feel better. But in that act of separating yourself from disaster, you ignore the design of the road and the design of the car and the economic situation that the driver might have been in that put them in those situations. Um, and all of those places are opportunities where we could prevent the harm from happening in the first place. Yeah. yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jesse Singer. She's a journalist and author of the book, There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. Her work can be seen in many publications, including the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and The Nation, among others. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you make of, quote, accidental deaths due to things like car crashes, drug overdoses, fires, or drownings? How much fault do you think lies outside the individuals in these circumstances? How much lies with the people who build and regulate our environment? Uh, and what do you make of the lopsided nature of the consequences of those kinds of accidents, the fact that they befall more people uh, who are black and brown more frequently than they do white Americans? Uh, do you think there are things we could do differently about uh, the way we build our world, the way that uh, we construct our environment that would make things safer for everybody? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can include you in our conversation that way. Before we get to our listeners, Jesse, I want to talk about uh, your best friend who died in his early 20s from an accident. Uh, talk about that and how it got you started off uh, being interested in this subject and writing this book. Absolutely. I can talk about that. Um, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a happy story, um, but... Um, 
I think it's an important one. Um, in, in 2006, my best friend, um, who was a New York City high school math teacher, um, was riding his bike on a separated biking and walking path that runs along the west side of Manhattan. Um, he was killed there um, by a driver who had mistakenly turned and entered the bike path instead of the adjacent highway. That driver was drunk. He was also speeding, and he went to prison. And for a long time, that was the end of my best friend's story, and that was the end of this story for me. Um, but the impetus for writing this book would actually happen 11 years later. 11 years later, a different man would rent a truck and follow the exact same route as my best friend's killer, except this time the man intentionally turned onto the path. Mm. Uh, he killed eight people and severely injured 11 in an act of vehicular terrorism. The fact that these routes to harm had followed the exact same literal path um, inspired me to look deeper into my best friend's death. And what I learned was that other people had been killed before and after my best friend on the same path. Uh, every time the drivers entering this path entered by accident, um, quote unquote, um, but the drivers were different every time. Some were distracted, some were lost, some were drunk. Uh, but every time the story that was told was it was an accident. Uh, these were all accidents. And so no problems were solved. No conditions were changed. But, but after the terror attack, 11 years later, after the terrorist attack, after an intentional act, the city and state got together and they made the harm impossible. They barricaded every single entrance to this biking and walking path so a car could no longer turn on it intentionally or unintentionally. And for me, it was this understanding and this really horrible moment of realizing that accident was a magic word that propelled a willful ignorance to ignore preventable harm, hmm. even when it happened again and again and again. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'm really sorry, of course, uh, about your friend, but it's really harrowing to think that so many years later, Somebody else was able to do the same thing and and kill more people. I mean, uh, it, it really does make that point that this is about policy, policy decisions, policy reaction, uh, and and the constructs of the physical environment uh, that we live in. Um, uh, I want to go to the phones here, and again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number. Uh, let's start with Zoe in Ferndale. Zoe, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen, and hi, Jesse. I'm a big fan of your work. Hi, Zoe. Thanks so much. Um, I was calling in because hearing this conversation really made me think of a so-called accident that happened here in Ferndale recently um, on Woodward Avenue, which is a diagonal road. There's a lot of near collisions between people in cars, people on foot, people on bikes. And a woman was hit in a marked crosswalk by a car turning onto Woodward. It was described by our local police as an accident, saying he simply just didn't see her. But when we build a diagonal road with poor visibility, 95% of drivers don't stop before the crosswalk when turning, and then the driver chooses to drive a Dodge Ram pickup, one of the deadliest cars in America, is that an accident, or is it something that's just going to happen time and again? Hmm. Um, and I, I talked to our, our local PR officer about the use of the term accident, tried to say, like, why 
you know, explain your book to her about why we really got to be thinking about these things in a different way. Um, and I'm still working on that, but hopefully more people will hear this conversation and start to think about ways that we can and should change our roads and our cars to prevent some of these so-called accidents from happening happening again. Yeah. Zoe, uh, I really appreciate the call and and you giving that example that's frustrating that you couldn't get officials there in Ferndale to to acknowledge what you were talking about and maybe do something about it. Uh, Jesse Singer, I wonder what your reaction is. I mean, it's a horrible story and it, it really gets at this idea that the way that the word accident makes us focus on agency, um, even if it's to say, this person had some agency, but they didn't mean it, so we're going to let it go, is such a distracting misnomer, you know, and and even, you know, the police officer who's responding in that case, you know, has little ability to solve this problem. You know the road is dangerous. You know the vehicle design is dangerous. And this really gets at the idea of two things, layered causality. We always like to think it was just one person and their agency, the last little thing that went wrong. Um, And we miss the way that these conditions stack up, that things go wrong in layers. And one of the things that goes wrong in layers is that, you know, know, a Dodge Ram truck is totally unregulated for size and grill height um, and power and therefore is one of the more deadly cars in America. Um, But the same thing is these road designs that – um, preference movement over safety, even in urban residential areas, um, you know, where there are so much uh, predictable harm happening. And it gets to this idea. We're talking about powerful people, governments and corporations that have far more control than you or I will ever have mm-hmm. over what goes wrong and whether or not we survive it. Um, there's like a good Detroit story to tell about this. Um, In the 1950s and 60s, traffic fatalities were skyrocketing. And the story that was put forth by automakers, by the government, was that drivers were irresponsible. And so this is where you get the so-called nut behind the wheel. Um, Just one of those old tropes of the reason people die in traffic crashes. Drivers are nuts. And that remained the case until the federal government stepped in and proposed Mm -hmm. the first vehicle safety regulations. You know, seat belts, collapsible steering columns. Uh, glass that didn't shatter on impact. And Henry Ford Jr. at the time, in response to these regulations, he said, these are unfeasible and so expensive that I have to, I'll have to shut down Ford. Ford's going out of business. Now, of course, Ford was lying. That didn't happen. We have seatbelts in every car in America. Uh, but think about what that change wrought. The government could have told us all to be more responsible, to drive better, to you know, have more agency in how we drive our cars. Uh, but Telling people to drive safer, um, you know, can only create at the very best a limited pathway to safety. But if we change the built environment to protect people, um, whether that's a seat belt or a narrow road that discourages speeding or curb cuts that allow pedestrians to step a little safer further into the road so they're more visible, all of these things add layers of safety, uh, reducing the likelihood that things will go wrong and also reducing our reliance on individual agency to keep us alive yeah yeah okay we are going to take a quick break we're going to raise a little money and then we're going to come back and continue this conversation with jesse singer the author of there are no accidents we also will continue with you on the phones and on social 
If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number. Shanae in Gross Point, John and Eastside. Uh, we will get to you first when we come back. Again, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Jesse Singer, a journalist and author of There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster. Who profits and who pays the price? We're talking about the fact that many of the things we describe as accidents are really nothing of the kind. Uh, they are things that are predictable and preventable. Outcomes of the decisions that we make in the built environment. Uh, they are things that also have a lopsided effect on black and brown communities because of the way the built environment uh, affects our lives. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think of how dangerous the world is uh, in many ways. Accidental deaths uh, that are caused by car crashes or drug overdoses or fires or drownings. How much of that do you see as the consequence of the, the decisions that people who build and regulate our environment uh, are making? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter Hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you in the conversation. I want to go uh, to a caller next, uh, Myra Teta. Uh, Myra, welcome to the show. Hey, um, my name is Myra. Um, thank you so much for um, allowing me to just go ahead and call in. Um, one of the things, as a resident of the city of Detroit, I see a lot of our traffic crashes uh, drastically going up. And a part of that, when I think of our roads, they are so wide. Mm -hmm. um, Amen, so, Myra. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Can you yeah. say that again? No, I was, I was, I was saying amen. You're absolutely oh, oh. right. I complain all the time about the number of six or even seven or eight lane roads that we have around the city. Every major artery in the city is that wide. Yes, yes. And when you start to reduce those lanes, individuals are going to naturally drive slower. Um, and at the same time, people are going to start looking around and seeing businesses. And so when you start reducing those lanes, it's great for businesses. It's great for the pedestrians, because when you increase those traffic speeds, um, if a person is hit, as a traffic speed is higher, a person has more risk of dying or sustaining a uh, major injury. And so I'm proud of the work that the city of Detroit is doing, um, thinking about uh, Kirchable and Livernois, um, just seeing the changes that they've made to reduce the amount of traffic lanes. Uh, businesses are enjoying it. Pedestrians are enjoying it. 
And I do agree that we're not looking at things that are accidents, but we're looking at things that are uh, because we are the motor city and we're built for cars <laughs> right yeah, now. We um, really even are. our crosswalks, we don't have as many crosswalks. And so when I see seniors or those who are in wheelchairs or um, those with their children trying to get from point A to point B, and they have to walk so far in order to get to a crosswalk. And so sometimes it's easier to walk through um, a passageway that might not be as safe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to see the work that Detroit is doing, and I can't wait to continue to see um, the amazing uh, transformation that's taking place and hoping and praying that that starts to reduce our substantial number of traffic crashes, which is part of the work that I do with the Green Task Force. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm on my way to a city council meeting right now to discuss <laughs> um, some of the ways that we can improve road safety. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Myra, I, I absolutely love that you called and, and shared that point of view because I absolutely agree. And, you know, I'll tell a quick story about going out to dinner down on Michigan Avenue, which, uh, you know, just just west now of Corktown is becoming this great space for restaurants and bars and there's all kinds of activity. And of course, uh, Ford is redoing uh, the train station uh, nearby and there's just a lot more activity over there. But you now need to be able to walk across Michigan in many cases to get to some of the things. If you're at one place and need to go to another, you got to cross that road. There are not a lot of lights uh, on, the, on the road at that point. And the crosswalks that exist are kind of ignored by the drivers. And the traffic at that point moves at 40 or 50 miles an hour. So you are essentially playing Frogger trying to get across uh, uh, that road. And, and, you know, it's a matter of time before something pretty tragic actually ends up happening there. Um, but but we never think of it that way, right? We, we are celebrating all the things that are happening along Michigan Avenue. We're not thinking about the fact that maybe we need to rethink that road and rethink how wide it is, rethink how quickly traffic moves, uh, moves up and down it. Uh, I will also point out that we're having a conversation right now about uh, filling in I-375, the, the, the spur that, that – uh, wiped out neighborhoods like Black Bottom and, and Paradise Valley uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and that's a great idea to, to, to try to restore that and, and bring some restoration to the families and businesses who lost so much when that freeway was built. But we're already talking about making that a road, uh, making it a six-lane road, uh, which is not much different, really, from the freeway. It'll be a six-lane road with a boulevard, but it's still six lanes of traffic. Uh, our instinct in this community is almost always to build big roads. We build big roads everywhere. We have them all over the city, and they are antithetical to the safety that uh, we need for pedestrians, but they're also antithetical to the idea of neighborhoods, uh, the kind of walkable neighborhoods that you are seeing being invested in and built in, in other cities. We've got we to gotta change that. We've got to change that instinct of ours to build these super highways uh, through, through our city. Uh, Jesse Singer, I'll give you a chance to respond to Myra as well. 
Yeah, Myra, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your work trying to change these conditions because um, as much as I would like, you know, a magic top-down solution to arrive in our hands, it's going to take a fight. Um, It's going to take a local fight and it's going to take a federal fight to really change what our roads look like and what our cars, you know, how they function and what safety everyone has access to. Um, But you're pointing out a great point about how the conditions change the scenario. Um, We know this. Traffic engineer this, know this a hundred times over. Wide straight roads make people drive faster. Mm-hmm. They don't do this maliciously. They do it because they feel safer driving faster on wide straight roads. The, the, the design induces the behavior. And on the other side, on a narrow road, drivers drive slower, not because they're better people all of a sudden or they're very concerned about pedestrians. It's because on a narrow road, uh, you know, it feels less safe to go fast for the driver themselves. You know, talking about tearing down a highway, and you know, one thing we know is that when there are fewer roads and more transit, trips shift out of cars mm-hmm. and onto transit, which is safer. And so there you can see a different perspective on a layer of safety. It's not just the design of the roads, but the design of the transportation system, because you're less likely to kill someone or to be killed when you're a passenger on a bus or a passenger on a train than you are in your own individual car. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to share one other thing. I looked this up while we were on the break. Um, which is the accidental death rate in Michigan um, versus New York, where I'm calling you mm-hmm. from, where I live. Um, and you're, you're more likely to die, I would say significantly more likely to die by accident as a resident of Michigan than you are a resident of New York. Mm-hmm. And if you look at traffic accidents, it is much more significant. You are more than twice as likely to die um, in a traffic accident. Um, and I'm just looking at 2020 numbers here, um, as a resident of Michigan than you are of New York, which gets back to this conditions point. I don't think anyone listening uh, to your radio show in New York or Michigan would say that New Yorkers are more responsible people or better drivers. No, we're facing different conditions in different places, and that's resulting in different outcomes. We are more likely to be harmed in certain places. Yeah, yeah. Again, Myra, really love that you called uh, and shared that perspective with us. Let's go to the next caller, Vanessa in Detroit. Vanessa, what's on your mind? Hi, good morning. Hey. So I'm calling on behalf of nurses. Um, We're talking about traffic accidents, Mm -hmm. um, but we're also talking about um, unintentional accidents. And as I said before, um, nurses are short-staffed. And I think short staffing is an issue everywhere in all workspaces, human resources. Um, But especially um, when it comes to nurses, Um, you see the U of M nurses um, and shout out to them for trying to get safe staffing. But that's not just U of M. I work at a community hospital here in Detroit. And if you don't have safe staffing, if you're short staffed, then the nurses that are on staff, we're scrambling to take care of the patients that are there without the patients knowing that we're short-staffed. And so when I hear the author, Jesse, thank you for your work. Thank you, Stephen, um, for your work. When I hear you say these things are unintentional and it's about policy and infrastructure, mm. I agree. Yeah. Because policy doesn't change or doesn't come up until you have a sentinel event or until you have a death or an accident. And that's when the organization wants to say, oh, we need to do something when all the time 
the staff, the human resources, the nurses have been saying on repeat, we need safe staffing. We We need staff and we need safe nurses to patient ratio. So Vanessa, is it is it your opinion that the staffing issue is about executive decisions that either don't pay enough or don't recruit enough people or is it also that this this uh, this I guess new this new take on work that people have that it's harder to find people who are qualified and can do the work uh, and are willing to do it? Or is it some combination of those things? All of the above. Yeah. Well, I do believe as a person that's approaching 50 that um, our work ethic has changed, especially after COVID. People can say, I can find something better mm-hmm. or I don't have to deal with this. Um, um, but we're cranking out nurses all the time. Um, so, yes. Um, as far as the organization, yes, they need to find and recruit staff that fit the requirements. And once we get on the floor or on assignment, you need to make sure that you have enough nurses in the case of just like any place else at a restaurant, any place. If you have a call in, you have the staff to fill in those gaps because if you don't, then things start to get cut. And when I say cut, you start to cut corners in, in your job. And yeah. it's not because you want to, but you're trying to be efficient and you're trying to be safe. Yeah. But it's hard to be efficient and safe when you have 10 patients, when you're assigned 10 patients, when you're really only supposed to be assigned five. Yeah. And that's an over-exaggeration, but I'm just giving you some sort sure. of sure. Vanessa, I, I, I love the call and I love your, your kind of pulling back the curtain on – um, what's going on in in hospitals, uh, Jesse? This this reminds me very much of the the kind of um, I guess structural aspect of all of this. That the, the the way things are designed, the way we think of staffing hospitals, the way we think of paying nurses and valuing them, all contributes to this difficulty, which of course then contributes, as Vanessa's pointing out, to more, quote, accidental deaths that really are not accidents because they were predictable. Vanessa's absolutely right. And we've seen exactly what she's talking about throughout the history of accidental deaths. You know, today, uh, accidental overdoses, accidental traffic crashes, accidental falls lead the accidental death toll. But the last time that accidental death was sky high in this country was during the second industrial revolution when worker death, dying by accident on the job was the most common way. And exactly to Vanessa's point, that only changed when uh, workers unionized, demanded better conditions, and the government responded by regulating the workplace for the first time. And that was both regulating the built environment of the workplace People can only work this many hours. You have to guard your machines. You have to have fire exits. Um, But also putting a cost on accidental deaths with workers' compensation laws so that when something went wrong on the job, you know, there was a cost to the corporation. We actually also see this, interestingly, in a lot of other workplaces. But what I like to bring up is um, anesthesiology. Um, which is, uh, you know, in the medical field, a place where not uh, the worker, the anesthesiologist was dying, but that uh, patients were dying. 
And he used to be, he used to be much, much more common in this country to die under anesthesia. Um, and part of this is because anesthesiologists were wildly overworked and understaffed. And then there were a series of tort cases suing hospitals over, um, over these deaths and their commonness. And that led to new rules about training and work hours. And today it is infinitely less common to die under anesthesia because those medical professionals are working under more reasonable conditions. Mm. Um, and I think this gets at a really important point which is both of these stories are instances when we were making a corporation pay now to be responsible for the conditions they were creating. But when we don't do this, we all pay more later. Today, in the deregulatory environment we have, corporations externalize the cost of accidents. And then we all pay for it. We pay for it in liability and healthcare and road repair and emergency services and welfare. Um, it, It affects our society in every way that we don't force the responsible parties, whether it's staffing nurses or designing our roads, to actually be responsible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Vanessa, thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's quickly go to Shanae in Gross Point. Shanae, we've only got a couple minutes left, but want to want to hear from you here. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. I just wanted to quickly um, kind of cycle a little bit back to how in Detroit, there's like this intersection of how we have a lot of like drunk driving um, that happens and then like the limited traffic enforcement due to like the lack of resources we kind of struggle with. And then no functioning transit system to replace Mm. the need to drive drunk. And it's no coincidence that this happens in Detroit, a predominantly black city and particularly in like communities that don't necessarily border or or are in proximity to like revitalized or affluent communities. You don't really see a lot of regulation there. You don't see a lot of like bike lanes or pedestrian friendly roads. And I think the fact that in New York, their stats are better than ours, considering like how many more residents that they have there um, it's really like unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shanae, I, I really appreciate that. You're right about the, the drunk driving in Detroit, the reckless driving in Detroit, and the fact that we no longer have enough officers on the police force to even do the kind of traffic duty uh, that that uh, those of us who grew up here, for instance, in the 70s and 80s would would remember. I mean, you used to you used to get pulled over a little more often if you were we're doing those things. There aren't enough police now to do that. Uh, Jesse Singer, we've got about a minute left. I want to give you a chance to respond to Shanae. Thanks so much for calling, Shanae. And I think this is an interesting thing. Uh, an epidemiologist named Sue Baker once, um, and she's one of the pioneers of like injury prevention in this country, and she said to me in an interview, she said, what we really need to do is make the world safe for drunks. Because we often think about the drunk driver as the mm. worst person, you know, on the road. But when we fail to make the streets and the world safe for drunks. We also fail to make it safe for people who are sleepy and people who are distracted and people who are thinking about how they have to get an operation the next day and aren't fully attended to where they are. Essentially what we're doing then is we're building our world for perfect people hmm. and then punishing them later. Um, so a lot of what we do is we fail to prevent these so-called accidents because we think we can fix people, make them perfect. 
And we miss all these dangerous conditions that stack up. And I, I really appreciate how you identify like the lack of public transit. Um, because the truth is, you know, we can yell at people about drunk driving, but people are going to get drunk and it would be great if we can get them away home. And one thing studies show is that when you extend uh, the hours of transit times, for example, and Washington, D.C. did this, extending them from midnight until 2 a.m., DUIs dropped because people were still going to get drunk either way. And now they had a safe way home. They had a way home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jesse Singer, author of There Are No Accidents. It was really great to have you here to have this conversation with our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Mm-hmm. That's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow. And we're going to talk about a new report that details the caregiving crisis here in Michigan and how we might go about fixing it. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.